The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 62, The Gupta Empire. Although this week's episode is focusing on the Gupta Empire, we will also join the dots and follow the story of India after the fall of the Maurya Empire. If you recall, we studied the Maurya Empire in episode 59 and its most well-known monarch, Ashoka the Great, in episode 60. Ashoka the Great is very well known for his radical change of morals when he turned his back on his ruthless and bloodthirsty campaigns throughout the Indian subcontinent for a life of piety, remorse and penance when he became a major advocate of Buddhism. Shunga The last Mauryan ruler was a king called Brihadratha Maurya and we mentioned him towards the end of the Maurya episode as the ruler who was assassinated on the premise that he was attending a military parade only to find that the army general, Pushamitra Shunga, had planned the assassination, which was successfully carried out. Pushamitra would then take control of the Mauryan centre of power, based at the capital of the traditional kingdom of Magadha, at the city of Pataliputra. The Shunga dynasty marked a great change in the tradition of the empire of Pataliputra. In order to validate his claim to the throne, Pushamitra would carry out the Ashvamedha sacrifice where a horse would be set free but guarded for a year by royal warriors. If the horse survived this year without being killed by a rival, then the king himself would sacrifice it in a demonstration of his qualification to rule. Animal sacrifice was not something approved by Buddhism so it was clear that Pushamitra was not a supporter of Buddhism. Worse still, he actually persecuted Buddhist monks. He is described as a follower of Hinduism. So Pushamitra highlighted the chasm between these two main Vedic religions of the modern world, not only highlighting the differences, but by putting them in direct opposition to one another. It could be for this reason that Hinduism would come to be the dominant religion of modern India, but we do understand that Brahmanic religious tradition, which is somewhat synonymous with Hinduism during this period, was always dominant among the population, even during the reign of Ashoka. Pushamitra Shunga was an aggressive king waging war against the Kalingans and the Satavahanas, who between them occupied subcontinental lands south of the Ganges and Narmada valleys. The Shunga would also challenge the lands of the Greco-Bactrians to the northwest. Throughout the rule of the Shunga, it is quite difficult to establish how large the empire actually was, as we can't be completely sure which territories were consumed by the empire and which were operating as vassal states. 
It seems that after the rule of Pushyamitra, and then in turn his son Agnimitra, that the Shunga dynasty's power diminished. Certainly the emergence and independence of the Indo-Greek kingdom, which broke away from its Greco-Bactrian origins, threatened the lands of the Western Shunga Empire. The Indo-Greeks would be somewhat displaced by the Indo-Scythians, who originated from the Saka, a Scythian culture who migrated down from the steppe. So, with the growing strength of the Satavahana in the south, and the Indo-Scythians to the west, the Shunga's influence was severely compromised. One particularly interesting aspect of this period is the development of the Sanchi Stupa, which, if you recall, was a Buddhist temple commissioned by the Mauryan Emperor Ashoka the Great. Despite Pushyamitra's persecution of Buddhist monks, his son Agnimitra had been named as the Emperor, who rebuilt it greater than its predecessor. So the anti-Buddhist sentiment is isolated to Pushyamitra only. Kamva It might have been that the centre of power of the Shungas shifted west from the city of Pataliputra to the city of Vidisha. We certainly see more evidence of Kamva coins in the area of Vidisha. The Kamva dynasty was the one to replace the Shunga dynasty. The last ruler of the Shunga dynasty, Devabhuti, was assassinated by one of his ministers, Vasudeva Kanva, who usurped the throne. The extent of the Kanva dynasty's reach is a little uncertain. There are a lot of vague reports of different activity during this period. We know that the Satavahana dynasty were dominating the central lands of the Deccan Plateau. The Indo-Scythians had been pushed into the northwest of India by the Parthians, where they firmly established themselves. At some point during this era, the Jainist king of the Kalingans called Caravella is reported to have been a prominent ruler by cave inscriptions, so it's difficult to tell what impact they would have had on the dynasties around them. We believe that the Kanva were only in power for a couple of generations during the 1st century BCE and we tend to know more about what was going on in the West with the emergence of the Indo-Parthians marginalising the Indo-Greeks and blockading the Indo-Scythians into northwest India. The story of the West was one which we followed last week when we tracked the emergence of the Kushans in the lands of Bactria and the Hindu Kush mountain range. As the 1st century continued and eventually made way for the 2nd century, the Kushan Empire expanded significantly and touched upon the lands of the Magadha, centred on Pataliputra. As the 2nd century continued, so the power of the mightier entities declined. The Parthians were waning, as it would be not long before they would be conquered by the Sasanians. The Han Dynasty of China was heading for collapse. The Kushan Empire was reducing its area of influence after its peak years under the rule of its best-known king, Kanishka. The Indo-Scythian and Satavahana areas of influence in the subcontinent itself were much smaller than they once had been. So, the world was changing. We already learned last week about the fate of the Kushan Empire, which dominated the Silk Road route between Persia and China. 
when the Sasanians conquered the Parthians, they went on to conquer the Kushans as well, turning them into a vassal state. They would never be an independent entity ever again. The Gupta We don't really have a lot of information about what was going on in northeast India up until the 4th century and after the age of the Maurya, the Shunga and the Kamva. So we can probably assume a period of prolonged localised rule similar to city-states only. For some time now we have mentioned Indo-Greeks and Indo-Scythians and Kushans and all of them refer to invading dynasties and kingdoms. The rise of the Gupta dynasty in the 4th century is retrospectively viewed as Indian people taking control of Indian fortunes, in contrast to the cultures filtering into these lands from the northwest for many centuries. The Gupta's dynasty's origins would have dated back earlier than their rise to power in the 4th century, but once again information is scant. There is a clue, however, and the clue can be found on an object that takes us back to an earlier episode. During episode 60 about the Mauryan Empire, Ashoka the Great, we described how his story and his instructions to his subjects were inscribed into stones and the more impressive monolithic pillars. Well, it appears that future cultures decided that they would add their own updates to these pillars with new information recorded for posterity. One in particular is very interesting to us because it offers clues about the origins of the Gupta dynasty. The Allahabad pillar is likely to have been commissioned by Ashoka the Great back in the 3rd century BCE as it carries one of his edicts. Around 600 years later, an update was added and it has been attributed to the reign of Samudra Gupta a Gupta emperor from the 4th century. It gives us information about the family lineage of Samudra Gupta. It tells us of his great-grandfather, the original Gupta, who likely founded the dynasty. We don't have any excavated coins that refer to the original Gupta, however. The only thing we do have is a mention from the writings of the 7th century Chinese monk called Yijing, that Gupta built a temple in Indian lands during his lifetime that would be a haven for Chinese Buddhist pilgrims. We believe that he may have been alive during the 3rd century. Gupta would have been a local king of a small kingdom when he was alive, and he would have been succeeded by his son, Khatotkacha, we have no significant recorded information about Hatotkacha, but this could be an opportune time to discuss the status of the Gupta dynasty in wider society. You will remember that we introduced the origins of the Hindu caste system back in episode 59. Now as much as we talk a lot about Buddhism in India during this period, we must always be mindful of the fact that in the subcontinent, Hinduism was the dominant religion and this meant that much of the population took the caste system seriously. Just to remind you, the caste system sought to categorise all members of society from birth into a class based on the class of their family. The priests would occupy the highest caste called 
the Brahmins. The kings and warriors would belong to the next caste down, called the Kshatriyas. The merchants, artisans and landowners belonged to the Vaishyas, which was the next level. And at the bottom of the system were the working class, called the Shudras. A style of slave class were excluded from the caste system, and they were called the Dalits. The Guptas, despite ruling their own kingdom, were considered to belong to the Vaishyas, which were only the third of the four castes. Khatotkacha may have realised that it was sensible to address this by arranging a marriage for his son with a princess from the Lichavi kingdom in order to extend the influence of the Gupta by more practical means. It is definitely acknowledged in ancient texts that Hatotkacha's son, Chandra Gupta, did marry a princess from the Lichavi kingdom, but we can't be certain about whether it was his father Hatotkacha who arranged this, or Chandra Gupta himself. Chandra Gupta I The first ruler of the Gupta dynasty for whom we have significant information about is Chandra Gupta, son of Hatotkacha and grandson of Gupta. We believe that Chandra Gupta came to the throne in around the year 320. When he came to the throne, the Guptas didn't have any imperial reach. The marriage alliance that we mentioned deserves more attention. The Lichavi were based further north than the power base of the Guptas around the area of the Kathmandu Valley. The Lichavi may have been militarily quite respectable by comparison to their many neighbours. It may also have been that the Lichavi rulers were of a higher caste than the Gupta rulers. These are all speculative reasons as to why the Gupta sought a marriage alliance with the Lichavi, but whatever the real reasons, it does appear that the alliance was a very favourable thing for the Guptas, who were able to expand their influence. It may have been during Chandragupta's reign that the Gupta territory expanded from its heartlands at Pataliputra westwards to Allahabad where the pillar of Ashoka was further inscribed by his son, as we already mentioned. The city would have been traditionally called Prayaga, as mentioned in the Rigveda, which are a collection of Vedic hymns. From now on, the Gupta emperors would be known as the Maharaja Deraja, with Raja being the Indian word for a king. So this is very similar to the title King of Kings that the Persians used when they called their own emperors the Shahanshah. And this stylization of name for the ruler may have been brought to the awareness of Indians by the Kushans, who would have adopted the Persian title. Samudra Gupta Samudragupta was the son and successor of Chandragupta and possibly the one who commissioned the additions to the inscriptions on the Allahabad pillar which give us a vague clue about the origins of the Gupta dynasty sometime in the 3rd century. Samudragupta took the Gupta throne possibly in around the year 335. The inscriptions on the Allahabad pillar were composed by a courtier to Samudragupta called Harisena, 
and it actually tells us a little bit about the campaigns of Samudragupta. It would appear that Samudragupta's primary intention was to head west and gather lands into his influence. He would march west across the modern state of Uttar Pradesh until reaching Rajasthan. This would bring the Guptas as far as the easternmost reaches of the Sassanids from Persia, who had expanded in the opposite direction and consumed the Kushan Empire. Seemingly satisfied that he had done what he could in a westward direction, Samudra Gupta would then pick off the small kingdoms down the east coast of the subcontinent, the traditional lands of the Kalingans. It is unlikely that the Gupta reached the area of the modern city of Chennai, formerly called Madras. This is because much of the lands of the modern state of Tamil Nadu were under the control of the Pallava dynasty. We do have it written that Samudra Gupta defeated a Pallava king called Vishnagopa in battle, but there is little to suggest that Samudra Gupta took Pallava lands. Samudra Gupta also made sure that he had secured the lands of the Ganges Delta by expanding eastwards into West Bengal and Bangladesh. So by the end of his long and successful reign, Samudra Gupta had extended Gupta influence across a great swathe of land across northern India and the traditional lands of the Kalingans down the east coast. This meant that this was the largest India-based empire since the Maurya Empire around 600 years earlier. Many kings and tribes were subdued by Samudra Gupta whose legacy would see him retrospectively branded as the Napoleon of India to reflect his relentless invasion and annexation of many Indian lands. So despite any initial suspicions of Gupta monarchs being low-caste humans, much of India's city-state monarchs recognised Samudra Gupta's dominance and respected his power not wishing to antagonise him into battle. The Gupta army was obviously an effective unit and some historians suspect that Gupta contact with what was left of the Kushana in the West may have proved to be a military education for the Gupta. It appears that no one in India dared to mess with the Gupta under Samudra Gupta's reign. Samudra Gupta also gave his approval of the work being done by Buddhist missionaries of Sri Lanka, so he demonstrated religious tolerance too. Indo-Scythians If we go back to the 2nd century BCE, then we can see the emergence of an Indo-Scythian culture. The Scythian cultures were a collective name for most of the nomadic steppe cultures in and around the Pontic Caspian steppe, during the first millennium BCE. This would include the Scythian tribes which refer to a specific set of tribes within the Scythian cultures. The wider Scythian cultures would include other nomadic tribes of the steppe including the Sarmatians and the Sakas. The Sakas migrated southwards in around the second century BCE and would occupy an area that came to be known as Sakastan roughly the lands of southern Afghanistan on today's map. It wouldn't take too long before the Parthians would force them out of these lands and eastwards 
into the lands of northwest India, where we recognise them as the Indo-Scythians. Simply a fusion of Scythian and Indian cultures, but actually migrating Sakas and their descendants. During the 1st century BCE, a contingent of Indo-Scythians invaded the area under the rule of the city of Mathura in the north of India. And this would come to be known in history as the Northern Satraps. The remainder of the Indo-Scythians would attempt to stay in Sakastan, but this would not last very long as the might of the Parthians proved too much, as they were forced eastwards into the lands of the subcontinent, where they would be distinctly known to history as the Western Satraps. Although the Northern Satraps and the Western Satraps of Northwest India shared an Indo-Scythian culture, their fates would take different paths. It would be during the first century that the Kushans would migrate southwards and establish their own imperial presence in Sakastan and Bactria and the surrounding lands. The Kushans would then press eastwards and conquer the northern satraps, leaving the western satraps as the only Indo-Scythian entity on the map. With the subjugation of the Kushans by the Sasanians during the 3rd century, the western satraps continued to exist with little disturbance other than local skirmishes with bordering tribes. The end would actually come at the very beginning of the 5th century and it came at the hands of a Gupta monarch called Chandragupta II. Chandragupta II the Indo-Scythians existed in one form or another for many centuries until they were finally conquered and consumed by the Gupta Empire, possibly around the year 405. The Gupta Emperor was Chandragupta II, son of Samudragupta and grandson of Chandragupta I. An Indian playwright called Vishakadatta from this era is attributed to be the one who wrote the Sanskrit drama called the Devi Chandraguptam, which tells us a story of how Chandragupta II came to the throne. It is said that his older brother Ramagupta ruled the Gupta Empire, but decided to surrender his queen to the Indo-Scythians because they held the Guptas under siege. However, Chandragupta went into the enemy camp disguised as Ramagupta's queen and killed the Indo-Scythian ruler, which may have ended the siege. Chandragupta's bravery earned him the adulation of the Gupta's subjects, who may have supported him over his brother. So Chandragupta killed his older brother, Ramagupta, and took both his throne and his queen. The exact detail of this story is actually quite vague and there is a danger of misinterpretation. We don't have much reference to Ramagupta in the Gupta king lists, but we certainly do have reference of Chandragupta II. As is often the case with South Asian history, we can turn to the study of the numismatics, the study of currency and money and more specifically in relation to our subject here, coins. The coins from the Western Satraps were gradually replaced by the coins of Chandragupta II, 
which suggests that it was Chandragupta II who conquered the Indo-Scythian western satraps, removing the last remnants of the Indo-Scythians from the map after over 500 years of presence in the region after the migrations of the Saka. Under Chandragupta II, the Gupta Empire dominated all the lands of northern India from the Indus Valley to the Ganges Delta. The 5th century was the apogee of Gupta power in India, with great cultural aspects that have led to it being referred to as classical world India. It may have been down to the military success of the Gupta rulers that has led us to believe that the taxation of the population was comparatively low, especially in reference to the landowners and the farmers. It may have been unnecessary to put heavy taxation on agriculture when so much wealth was being plundered from other kingdoms. Those wealthiest citizens of the Gupta Empire would enjoy a much more pleasurable and leisurely lifestyle, not unlike the images we have of Greek and Roman aristocracy. Much literature was written to demonstrate the concentration on learning how to live a healthy and happy life, which was often the feeling we can receive from Vedic religions in general. There is a common misconception that the Kama Sutra, an ancient Indian text, is a guide to sex and the variety of sexual positions that can be shared. The pleasure of sex is simply one aspect of the Kama Sutra which actually encourages the pursuit of healthy emotions and that includes sharing a pleasurable relationship with a partner which of course includes having a healthy sex life as an important part of that. The principles of the Kama Sutra are thought to have been something that the wealthier citizens of the Gupta Empire would have had the time to contemplate. The Gupta style of architecture flourished during this period. Many of the earliest Hindu temples would have been built during the Gupta Empire but also extending to places such as the Ajanta Caves where great Buddhist paintings and sculptures exist in the Gupta style. The Gupta style was simplistic and bold coupled with ornate detail but the style could also vary depending on where you were in the empire. The Dashavatara temple at Diogar is one of the most iconic examples of Gupta architecture though. Decline. Now if we go back to episode 4 of this volume about the Sasanians then we discussed how in the 5th century various migrations from the north began to have an effect on the empires of the south. Initially, we were aware of Xionite migrations before a stronger wave of Hephthalite migrations. The Xionites and the Hephthalites are associated with the steppe. When the Hephthalites moved down into the former heartlands of the Kushan Empire, the Xionites were forced into the Indian subcontinent and this could have been the same migration that the Indian people refer to in their scriptures as the Hana. It's possible that the Hana were related to the Huns who appear in Roman scriptures from a similar era in history. It's possible that the Hana that entered the subcontinent contained Hephthalite tribes as well as Sinite tribes.
Whatever pressures were suffered during the reign of Chandragupta II's son, Kumaragupta, may have been eased during the reign of Kumaragupta's son in turn, whose name was Skandagupta. The successes of Skandagupta are somewhat assumed to be against the invading Hunna peoples. However, if the inscriptions of Skandagupta shine a positive light on his reign, the coins that have been discovered do not. The quality of the empire's golden coins appears to have been reduced during this period, which points towards a debasement of currency in general, which means that the value of things had diminished and life was becoming harder, and possibly due to Hunnic incursions. Entering into the 6th century and the westward reach of the Gupta Empire had been compromised, with lands once under their control now attempting to secure their autonomy and eventual independence from Gupta rule or suzerainty. The quite powerful Vakataka Empire, which dominated the lands of the Deccan Plateau, south of the Gupta's influence, also waned and disappeared by the 6th century. Even the Indo-Hephthalite Hunna peoples, who had pushed the Guptas out of their westernmost lands, were unable to stay in control of these lands, with the local chieftains and kingdoms taking control of their own affairs and shrugging off any kind of imperial subjugation from any major empire. The Vakatakas occupying lands that had been previously dominated by the Satavahanas before them. Despite the invasions of the Hunna being repelled by Indian kingdoms, it did cause a permanent cultural change to the subcontinent. With the trade routes out of India falling into unfriendly hands, the Gupta were denied the same trade opportunities that they had enjoyed previously, and this would further dent their economy after the major blows of the inflation of their currency and the loss of their western lands as previously described. It was all too much for the ineffective later Gupta rulers who were unable to turn the tide. Buddhism had been weakened by the Hunna through persecution, which was fine for the Hindus, but the caste system was also tampered with, with families being repositioned according to the will of the Hunnas. Important centres of culture and education such as Taxila were irreversibly altered with academic establishments destroyed, sending the region into a cultural dark age. As for the Guptas, there is no evidence of any last great battle of usurpation, just a gradual disappearance from the records. The Gupta Empire's fall is a total mystery waiting to be discovered but we can somewhat assume that it had gone by the start of the 7th century, or if not, it had become too insignificant for anybody to write about. So the classical age of India had been and gone. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode about the Gupta Empire. Next week we're going to be looking a little bit more closely at the religious aspects of the Indian subcontinent, um, Hinduism and, and uh, Buddhism 
in the main part, we're going to be taking a closer look at that, but pretty much the Vedic religions of the Indian subcontinent. And um, if you uh, enjoy the podcast and you want to support the podcast, you can always do so by uh, visiting the History of the World Podcast dot com website. There's plenty to do at the website if you if you're ever bored and, and you're looking for something to do, um, things to look at, videos, that kind of thing, um, discussion forums. Then go to the website History of the World Podcast dot com website. Um, if you want to support the podcast, you can um, uh, you can rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to the project. And otherwise, if if that's not enough for you, then you can make a financial contribution, which is always gratefully received because uh, producing a podcast of this nature does have its expenses. So uh, we're always grateful for having contributions. Um, you can either go to the Patreon page and uh, sign up there or, or you can make a one-off donation, um, which uh, somebody actually asked me about that this week. I think someone dropped me a line just asking me about that. You just click on the Buy Me A Book link if you want to make a one-off donation, so that is also a possibility. Uh, we welcome um, to the History of the World podcast Illuminati uh, France, uh, Francis Duma. And um, we also welcome Marcy. Uh, if I haven't welcomed you before, I'll, I'll get I'll get confused now. I've just got too much going on. But um, at the very least, I should uh, I should mention you and uh, say and say thank you. So uh, that's what I'm attempting to do. And um, the the way that you qualify to become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati is by making a financial contribution. We we put you on the page uh, of the History of the World podcast Illuminati members. You can click on that page and see everyone that's uh, ever donated anything to the podcast because that's uh, that's how you become a member of the of the Illuminati. So it's uh, open to anyone and everyone, and it doesn't matter how much you contribute, uh, you're in. Uh, in fact, it was uh, it was Rachel who wrote in and said, um, "Hi, Chris. I'm wondering if you accept one-time donations or if you are only accepting Patreon subscribers at this time. Please let me know, if possible, to donate and how to do so. Yes, yeah, simply go to the History of the World Podcast dot com website, click on Buy Me a Book, and uh, and away you go." Bastia Fabian has written in, put, Dear Chris, I came across your podcast when I was going through my Attila and the Huns phase. I was listening to everything I could find on that topic. It was for my birthday PowerPoint party where I did a 20-minute, 50-slide presentation about the Huns for our friends and five kids. I found your podcast so engaging and interesting that I started to listen to all the ancient Rome until the Huns episodes and what I love most about it is you don't sound like you're reading which makes it more captivating you really know your stuff and so I trust your expertise you're not just some voice actor reading a script um, a voice actor reading a, an email at the moment uh, you really explain things in an easy to understand manner e.g. pedigree collapse yeah that was a bit of a headache trying to explain that uh, your accent is quite mesmerising and soothing and it calms me down throughout my very my sometimes very hectic day of being a professional dog walker. Um, I just love it so much and have now started listening uh, from the very first episode. 
Who knew all the cavemen stuff was so riveting? You're the best podcast ever. Love you. Uh, Bassia Fabian, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Um, get your coat, Chris, I think. Um, Lynn D. Uh, often writes in. She sent me a YouTube video of E.T. saying be good, uh, which is quite right as well. We should all be good. Uh, Doug Kaywood has written in again, um, and um, what's uh, what's the essence of uh, what he's put? He's just put, um, have you ever thought about doing a video version of your podcast? Well, yes, I mean, um, we look, personally I haven't, but certainly uh, Nick Barksdale of the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages, has produced 23 videos um, that... Um, are there's a, well they're basically history of the world podcast um, uh, broadcasts uh, changed into a video format. So uh, if you've never seen those, it's it's definitely worth a look. You can click through to them once again on the history of the world podcast dot com website. Um, Stephen Letcher has put um, hello. I'd first like to say that I enjoy listening to your podcasts. I'm up to number ten so far. You've asked for suggestions on topics and, and such, so I wanted to share some ideas. I've always been interested in how early man interacted with the environment. What other animals did we interact with? What niche did we have? Who were our competitors and who were our predators? Uh, how did we protect ourselves? Things like that. I'm also curious as to how early man stored food. We often see romantically drawn pictures of early man making a big kill, but did this really happen? How much mastodon meat can one group eat without it going bad? That sounds like a quiz night question, that, doesn't it? Like, confer, confer with your family. Um, did we have the knowledge to smoke meats? Just a few ideas. I'm sure you get loads. Last thing, I'm hearing impaired and I use hearing aids. During the first minutes of your podcast, you play you play a pulsating music in the introduction, and then usually start speaking as it's finishing. This is very difficult to understand, and the pulsating music can be uncomfortable to listen to with hearing aids. Maybe I just need new hearing aids, but I wanted to point that out. The other ninety nine percent of your podcast is great, and I look forward to listening to more. Thank you, and good luck on your future podcasts. Um, well, that's a shame, isn't it? I didn't realise that um, that would have that effect, um, certainly when I was recording it. And I, I just wonder if it's specific arrangements because um, I think the theme tune has been um, remade on a, a, like, a couple of times. So I'm wondering if uh, Volume 2, Volume 3 is uh, any easier to listen to than Volume 1. But uh, who knows? Uh, maybe maybe you can write in and tell me, Stephen. Um You've asked a lot of questions there about our um, early relationship with uh, the environment and 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 animals, uh, particularly um, in the food chain, I would say. And then, of course, it, that that really does vary. I mean, when we talk about early men, do we are we talking about uh, modern Homo sapiens? Are we talking about Neanderthals? Are we talking about um, Homo? Habilis, um, what you know is, and and in in terms of where we are in the world as well, it's going to vary from one place to another. Like so, uh, it, it appears that the uh, the humans that were living in colder climates um, developed methods for 
uh, hunting big prey, uh, you know, and and so weapon development was a big thing, and um, and then if you come to the very modern times, you you look at pastoralism and how humans started to understand how that they could manipulate their environment to their favour. So this is a really really broad subject that you've brought up there, and and there are many many answers to it to each of those questions. Um, certainly I know that um, humans must have been storing food in cool places to keep it preserved and um, certainly in medieval times there were like there were ice houses where you could uh, you could actually put your meat in there a bit like the the ancient or or medieval freezer uh, so you know certainly we was doing that here in the UK for sure um, I've visited places where I've seen that so a uh, very interesting uh, batch of questions there and uh, if I think if I studied that um, specifically um, I probably would have much more knowledge but certainly yes depends where you are in the world and uh, depends on uh, the type of prey that are living in that area of the world and the development of weaponry uh, it, it, there's a lot of factors there but a uh, very interesting question indeed so there we go, some uh, listener messages. Uh, don't uh, be shy. If you want to write in, please do write in. I'm always happy to respond and uh, read out the best emails so that we can all share them together. And, and, and uh, please do um, get involved in a discussion forum on the website as well if you want to discuss some of the matters that have been raised in History of the World podcast or even if you want to ask me a question about something that's not related to history um, you know I might well answer it who knows anyway um, thank you to everyone who does uh, interact with the podcast it really does uh, it really does help to keep me motivated so, so I'm very grateful for anyone who does take the time to write in and, and I'll always endeavour to reply anyway that's it for this week, uh, next week uh, we're going to ex be exploring the religion of these lands, very important subject and a uh, very underpinning uh, aspect of what was going on in India and thanks to our study of the uh, ancient religion of India we get a better understanding of the stories that we've already told during this uh, last few episodes so a very important subject not to be missed um, until next week uh, have a great week everyone and uh, especially at this uh, this very precarious time in the world it's very important to be good come to the history of the world podcast.com and join all the other hot welders on our wide range of social media why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati? Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.